they just say to heck with it. You know, if it's going to be cold, I'm not going to be this depressed person who's staring at my computer indoor. We're going to go for a hike in minus 10 degree weather and they do it. And it's, it's, it's a really fun way of being, uh, you know, of being alive. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today is the newest of my Vagabonding audio companion episodes where I dig deeper into the themes that I explored in my book, Vagabonding. I take these episodes from my appearances on other people's podcasts where in answering certain questions about long-term travel, I cover interesting new ground and say things worth sharing on my own podcast. This Vagabonding audio companion episode is remixed from Ruben Dreiblatt's podcast about thru-hiking the Appalachian Trail. Ruben reached out to me because he was back home in New York after having finished hiking the length of the trail, and since he related to a lot of the advice I give in Vagabonding about what it's like to come home from a big trip, he wanted to talk specifically about the home reentry process. So in this episode, we talk about what it's like to return home after a life-changing dream trip and how to bring the travel experience home and discuss it with others. We talk about exploring your own home on foot and finding new ways to discover your own city, including going to neighborhoods that are considered, quote, bad, and how those places can actually be a revealing and enjoyable way to rediscover your own hometown. We talk about seeking to live in more affordable areas of a country like the United States and how life at home, like life on the road, is best not seen through a consumerist lens. We talk about the fears that keep people from traveling and how to stay accountable to your own travel dreams. We also talk about the quotes I use in Vagabonding and how the language of poetry has a power that mere prose doesn't. We start by talking about how long-distance trail hiking is its own unique kind of vagabonding travel. Let's listen in. So I threw mm-hmm. hiked the Appalachian Trail, which you know, it was a certain kind of vagabonding. Um, and that's kind of a question I, I have for you a little bit later about, I always viewed it as vagabonding adjacent because there was kind of a goal, a, a specific destination in mind, questing somewhere, as opposed to maybe the sense of like positive aimlessness that I kind of mm. associated with vagabonding. Um, but before we go there, I want to actually talk about coming home from the trip because that was something that I've struggled with less now, but I certainly struggled with it a lot more when I had first come home. And, you know, it's the advice and the sentiment in that chapter coming home is is brilliant. And I really felt like there was a lot there uh, that I could use. But, you know, I, I, just, I still, I tried to look at the practical challenges of reentry, like the finding an apartment and the job as an adventure, but I struggled with it. Um, everything just felt more disjointed than connected like it did on the trip. So I was wondering maybe if there's any further advice you have or can expand on regarding that kind of beautiful enlightened feeling that I felt while traveling while I'm back home and and not traveling. Well, it's never easy. And I think that's why I wrote about this. That's why I had a chapter about coming home because my first vagabonding trip was what's now called van life. I lived in a van uh, in 1994 uh, and traveled around the United States. And it was amazing. Just like every day, time seemed to slow down. Everything felt really new. Everything was very exciting. And then I came home and uh, just, it was back to normal time. Slow life didn't exist anymore. My friends were kind of interested in my travels, but not really, you know? Right. And and so I just had trouble adjusting. And I found that in my future trips in 
trips that happened after that, that I, I realized that re-entry was a serious part of the journey in part because it was so jarring, you know, that in a way home is the last destination of the journey. And it's not easy. Even if you have good advice from people like me or other people who've done it before, <laughs> that doesn't make it any easier than it does before, because right. when, when everything is new and everything is challenged and, you know, like for through hiking, when you have a goal, then everything is focused on that goal. Um, and then once that goal is gone or once that task is is gone, then it can be hard to, to refine your sense of focus. Totally. And so I think it's, it's just a process. I mean, it's, it's like getting started. Some people have trouble getting started traveling. They feel homesick. They, they feel uncomfortable. Everything is new. They're a little bit freaked out about things. Well, that takes getting used to. And so in a way, um, home is the final and oftentimes a very difficult destination to get used to. Uh, you get back to your routines. You have to realize that... Um, Again, even your friends who are interested in the trip aren't as excited about it as you were because they weren't there, you know, even if they right. saw you. Of course, when I started, we didn't have social media, but now that you have social media, that's a two-dimensional vision of this amazing experience that you can smell, you can feel the pain, you know, you can you can taste and 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 hear things that, that just don't get translated, um, even when you're trying to recount them in a very, in, in a, you know, passionate way. So I think... Um, yeah, just just realize that it's it's going to be a tough process, and then I think one thing that's that's fun, and I you, I know that you're in New York, so this is a fun thing to think about is how many places you haven't seen in your own hometown, how many roads you haven't gone down, Absolutely. and you know, and Manhattan and, and the five boroughs in particular, there's just so much amazing stuff. Not only in the five boroughs, I mean, there's great food everywhere you turn in New York, but I'm from Kansas, which I mean, fewer people live in Kansas than live in Brooklyn, I think, but <laughs> still there's places, there's roads I haven't been down to. And I, and I often have to challenge myself just to try new things. Um, and so, and, and sort of, reintegrating that sense of adventure to your home life can be fun. And just to say today, I'm going to eat. I'm not going to stop walking until I find a place where I can get food that originates in Africa. Right. Yeah. And so then you, then you walk until you find that place or a place in Asia. You know, it, it's funny. My, my wife knows that I love Korean food. And so we went in Kansas during my birthday to a, um, to a Korean restaurant, but it was near a military base here. And so most of the people who eat there are young American soldiers and they're not, they don't care about authenticity. They want, they want a lot of food, right? So it was, the portions were much bigger than I was used to. And the food was a little sweeter than I was used to. It was fun to see like Korean food through Kansas soldiers eyes. Right. Um, and so that was a fun part of my adventure. And um, actually walkers in particular, this can be a, a big thing in New York. You can, you can start walking in the morning and, and still be in the city when the sun goes down and mm -hmm. have an amazing experience where you hear 20 different languages and, and see all these different things. Um, so that's great. But even here in Kansas, um, which is a more rural area, uh, almost exactly a year ago, my wife and I decided we we're going to walk to a town called Little Sweden, Lindsborg, Kansas. And it's 22 miles. And we just thought we're going to walk. We don't really know how to get there on foot, but we'll just go until we get there. And it took us seven hours. And that's the kind of thing that throws you back into that open-hearted travel attitude, you know, that, that, that hike in particular, we didn't really know what was going to happen. And that took me back. I could have been in Namibia or Tas Tasmania, right? right? Because suddenly the unpredictable was a part of my day again. So I think if you just allow yourself, um, to get back into your habits, you'll forget that part of the fun was being outside of your habits. And so, Maybe even schedule days where you're going to have a wide open walking day. You're going to, you're going to have a day where you eat any food that is not, that is strange to your palate and just sort of travel your plan, your home life in the same way that you plan your travel life. Mm. Um, and 
And it's fun. And actually, sometimes in our hometowns, be it New York or, you know, Wichita, Kansas, or where I grew up or anything, people say, oh, don't go to that part of town. That's a bad part of town. Well, why? You know, right. why? Sometimes you can get great food or go to a cool, you know, festival or something in a part of town that people don't go to because they don't know why, but they think it's a bad part of town, right? So right, right. you challenge yourself to do new things and, and that can be really fun. Um, and actually one, one more thing that pops sure. in my head. I, f- I forget there's a, there's a Norwegian word. It's called like fruits live or something, which is out, called outdoor living. Well, Norway, my wife has Norwegian heritage, so she knows a lot about this. When the winter rolls around, um, it's really cold in Norway, you know, much colder than anywhere outside of Canada in North America. Sure. And one way that they deal with it is to go outside. They just say to heck with it. You know, if it's going to be cold, I'm not going to be this de- pressed person who's staring at my computer indoor, we're going to go for a hike in minus 10 degree weather and they do it. And it's, it's, it's a really fun way of being, uh, you know, of being alive of just saying, well, yeah, why, why did I not go to that neighborhood? It's dangerous. Why? You know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go see what people eat in that neighborhood. Why do I not want to go outside when it's too cold to go outside? I'm just going to go outside because why shouldn't I? And that becomes a fun way to bring travel into the, into the everyday journey at home. I, I love that answer so much. I mean, it's it's crazy how apropos it is because, you know, it's something I, I it only dawned on me two weeks ago and I, I kind of made the shift in my mind, but I feel like I should have known it having done the AT that you can just walk, just, just get out of your house and start walking. And yeah. very quickly, the familiar becomes unfamiliar as you walk down boulevards and streets that you've you've never been on. But I don't know, for some reason, when I came back, that didn't dawn on me and it took hmm. me several months. And actually the, really the inflection point was I watched this documentary called the world beneath your feet about this man, Matt green, who walked every block in New York city, uh, in all five boroughs. I don't, are you familiar with it? He's been on my podcast. Oh, yeah. amazing. Okay. It's, that's awesome. What an interesting guy. Yeah. He's, amazing. Yeah. He, he's yeah, really good so. at articulating that. And in fact, that's probably why I said you could walk the five boroughs because I was literally thinking of, of scenes from his documentary as I was yeah. giving you advice to walk in New York because <laughs> how crazy is that? And yeah. I did that once when I, I wrote a book about souvenirs a few years ago. And so I spend this, I teach a class in Paris every summer and I decided I stay in the fifth arrondissement while I'm there. And I decided I was going to walk down every street in the fifth arrondissement, which is one of 20 little neighborhoods in Paris and see how many and count the souvenir shops. Well, that took me 10 hours, but pretty soon I realized how I didn't even know my own neighborhood in Paris. I'd been staying there for more than 10 years um, for a month each summer. But I realized that there's a lot of places that we, a lot of streets we don't walk down because it's not convenient. Or they sort of look right. ugly or something. And so I loved talking to him about that experience because when you force yourself to go every street, then suddenly you see your, your own city in a new way. Totally. And I mean, I think there was something he talks about in terms of walking itself. It, it really is, in a sense, the truest form of travel. I mean, you're you're on your two feet and you're just moving. You can stop at any point and take things in, have an interaction, but you're still on the path. You know, on a bike, it's the, the dismounts and the stops have to be more calculated. You know, I'm going to stop for water and a little rest, but then get back on and move. And sure, I'll be taking it in a little bit, but the walking, because it's at such a, you know, slow pace, it's it's the travel, it's the exercise. It's kind of, it, it's just like vagabonding in a bottle almost. I mean, I don't, I, it, it just, it, it made me feel like, Hey, I got to just, I got to get out of the apartment. And I did. And I walked from Inwood at the tip of Manhattan to Bushwick. It was 16 miles. It was, I saw so many neighborhoods I'd never seen and I'm a native New Yorker, you know, and it just, it blew me away. 
Yeah, no, my my wife, we just moved. She had an apartment. She's an actor. So she kept an apartment in, in Brooklyn and we moved her out of the apartment. And it was, uh, and we live back here in Kansas now. And, and it, I was amazed by how small it was. And she's here, hey, it's New York. You know, I, yeah. it's, when I had acting jobs, I would come and, and live here. And it's just like, New York is a great city, but being indoors in New York is a little bit insane because you just, they don't, you don't, even if you're doing pretty well in life, you don't, don't have much real estate. You don't have a very right. big place. And so in, in big cities, in the Hong Kongs and New Yorks and, and London's of the world, absolutely get outside because otherwise how depressing is it to be, to be in the greatest city in the world and have 800 square feet to, to walk around. And if you're lucky, right? right. Right. And with the with the cold, like, I mean, you mentioned the the, the was it the, the Swiss uh, who uh, uh, the, and, the, the Norse, the, Nor- Norwegians, the Norse. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, when I did that walk, it was it was 10 degrees. I mean, I was I was mm. texting some friends like, hey, come out, meet me for a walk. They're like you're walking in this weather. What are you crazy? Like, I was yeah. like, I don't know, man, I just need a I need to do something that feels real. You know, I can't just be on the computer and inside and not have any sunlight. I mean, it's just. Yeah. 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 So that helped a little bit. That's kind of been since watching that documentary and going on that walk, I feel rejuvenated. And I do feel like I can now bring travel more into my, my day-to-day life and set aside days where I'm just like, I'm going to walk and just go to a new area, taste some new food, Mm. see some new parks. I mean, Mm. the city is huge. (laughs) And you know, I just took it for granted growing up. Like, Oh, I live in the biggest, greatest city in the world, but yeah. Have you been to the Lower East Side Tenement Museum? Way back in the day, I went with um, I I was uh, I went to a Jewish day school, and that mm. was the Lower East Side and those tenement buildings sure. housed many many Jews uh, at the beginning of the you know twentieth uh, century, nineteenth century. So I haven't been in a long time, but uh, worth a worth a revisit. Did you go recently? I I went there about ten years ago, uh-huh. uh, but I, I have a new book coming out this fall, and I mention it in there because. You know, this was before, you know, I think more like, you know, if if you had Jewish ancestors who came through there in 1900, like that was as high density as the slums of India are now, right? Mm. It's a historically unique situation, but it was also a time when the elevator had barely been invented. And so none of those places were higher than five or six stories because you had to walk up. Right. And and the poorest families had to live at the top because they had to walk everything up and down the stairs. Also, electricity was pretty new too. And so the the idea that you can sit with good lighting at 10 o'clock at night or midnight indoors is historically unique. That basically- The more time you spend, I mean, I spend a lot of time indoors, but the more time you spend indoors on purpose when you could be outdoors, that's just this strange 120-year-old phenomenon when actually humans have evolved to be outside. You know, human happiness is hardwired to be outside. And so I think some kinds of depression could be tied to the fact that we just spend too much time indoors, you know? Definitely. And I mean, there is some science to back that up in terms of seasonal depression and like uh, depleted vitamin D, you know, we're getting, hmm. getting less sunlight. So there definitely is, uh, you know, an element of science to back that up. And yeah, I mean, the, the feeling that I felt on the road, on, on the trail traveling, it was, it was the most me and the most human I've ever, I've ever hmm. been. And Uh, you know, getting back to that thing you mentioned before of talking to friends about the trip and wanting to share stories. And you write about this a a little bit in the book in that, in that chapter. Um, it just, it was very hard. I I had this pressure to sum it up, you know, everyone Mm. wants, you know, a little piece of it. 
I was at a family reunion. My cousin uh, put 60 seconds on the clock for me to sum up a six month trip. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what I can tell you, you know, it's yeah. not going to do it. So is the only way to uh, get those longer stories and that bigger feeling out to people in a form of long form content, like the podcast or a movie or a book? Is that, is that the way to do it? Yeah, well, that's that's complicated because um, we all have different talents. You know, if I was to make it into a movie, my my talent isn't visual. You know, the, the film I would make would not be as good as the book I make. Mm. Um, my social media chops are probably not as strong as my old school writing chops. So my Instagram story would not be as good as, again, the book that I would write. And right. so and then actually I've been reading about the act of storytelling and how memory itself exists in story. You know, the way our brain works that it would be overwhelming to remember all these details of our life. So we tell stories to ourselves. We actually remember our own lives in story. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in fact, some scientists found out that, well, actually a lot of therapists, when they talk to their patients, they try to create a better story for their patient. You know, they have this traumatic experience in their life. And basically the therapist, for lack of a better word, they help them create a better story that, to make that traumatic part of their life fit into the context of their life, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes... When we come back from an amazing travel, you know, trip, be it traveling across Africa or walking through walking the Appalachian Trail, the story we've told ourselves in our mind is just so much richer than we're able to, than comes out of our mouth. And pretty soon we're boring people at the bar because it's yeah. less interesting out of our mouth than it is in our brains. And so I, th I think it really... I think I think um, the title of the last chapter of Vagabonding is called Live the Story. You know, you can tell the story, but there's something about living the story. And one thing during my early travels, a lot of my friends didn't want to hear, like when I was in my 20s, they didn't want to hear my stories. But often they would be talking about other stuff and other things, and they'd say, wow, you just seem more confident now. You know, you just seem happier. And so I think sometimes living the story just means walking through the world with having internalized those lessons you learned on the road and telling the story becomes less interest, less important because you're living the story uh, and you're finding ways to internalize that. And then, then I think sometimes if you find someone who's like, you got to tell me, please tell me what happened. Then with the right audience, right. that lesser version that comes out of your mouth from, from that rich experience in your brain, it finds the right audience. Right. right. So um, I think sometimes it's a matter of, uh, and actually this happened with the book, you know, that had I walked back, had I walked into a random room in New York or Kansas and started talking about travel, it wouldn't have worked as if I put all these experiences into vagabonding and the people who pull it off the shelf are the people who need it. Right. Uh, and so I've been able to inspire people in a random way that never would have worked worked in person because I, I put at that time in my life, I probably had maybe six or eight years of travel experience into this book. And then the people who found the book, that was the perfect vessel with which to inspire people. So right. the, the audience self-selects itself and it's the best listeners. It's the people who are most interested in the, all right, I'm just going to sit down. You talk at me for, you know, 20, 30 minutes. Tell me the best stories. Tell me what happened. And you kind of have that open forum to, to really explore the, the trip that you experienced. Sure. And I'm sure it's that with, with this podcast, I think you mentioned some trail names earlier on. So yeah. not, it's just, you're not standing on the street corner in, in Madison park or something screaming at people. You're, you're, yeah. you're giving a podcast where people who are interested, who are already interested um, can, right. can, can come and listen. So, right. Yeah. No, yeah. So I guess to that idea then of trying to put together something larger now post trail to capture that feeling is that it does it just depend on sort of my strengths and what, pushes me. And if I'm not feeling it, don't, 
don't kind of force it. Hmm. What would you say? Yeah, yeah I, I would say don't force. Well, how old are you? I'm 25. 25. Yeah. Uh, perfect. So when, when I was 24, I tried to write a book about my first vagabonding experience because yeah. I thought, oh, I have to do it like Jack Kerouac and John Steinbeck did. Right. Right. Well, the book was a failure. It wasn't very good. I, I, I reread it recently and it literally wasn't very good, but I learned so many important lessons. And so I think when you're at your age, you know, you're about the same age I was, maybe um, it's worth you know, you're talking about feeling, maybe you should try to force something. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work because you're 25. You, you have this giant, you're, you're half my, you're literally half my age right now. And so, um, I'm, I'm a big believer in being open to fail in anything, including hiking the Appalachian trail or going to Africa or whatever, that that's an important thing because failure really teaches you more important lessons than success in a certain sense of the word. Um, at the same rate, I would say that just sort of following your passion and your strengths is another important thing, you know, yeah. that even though I failed at writing a book when I was 24, um, I'd already identified it. I sensed that it was a strength that I had, right? Not everybody's going to be a writer. Some people are going to, they're going to hike the Appalachian trail and come back and paint an amazing, you know, landscape portrait, or they're going to right. write a song. Right. And so to to an extent, I think it is good to be cognizant of your strengths and your passions while at the same time being wide open to failure, especially in your twenties, because I I've been telling audiences for years, your twenties are meant to be wasted. And by that mean, I don't mean just do something stupid, but like try things and fail because what better time in life uh, do you have time to be independent, but not really beholden to, to what's happening tomorrow. You know, right. that you, can, you can fail and nobody's going to think less of you because that's the time in life when, when um, failure teaches you the best lessons. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I have very little responsibility, all things mm -hmm. considered. So now is the time. Uh, there's a comedian I like, Gary Goleman, who he quotes a, a famous author. I don't remember his name. Maybe you'll remember, but the quote goes, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah I, think that's, I mean, I, yeah. I think that's Samuel Beckett. I think it's a playwright. It is. It is yeah. Samuel Beckett. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't yeah. remember who he was quoting, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And vagabonding is full of just great quotes. I mean, the, the Nietzsche quote about uh, the perception of like a moment and how we always overlay all our old, old feelings on whatever new is happening instead of like hmm. adjusting to the divergence and novelty of the impression of what we're experiencing. And from Bruce Lee to Jack Kerouac, Walt Whitman, Mm. Were, were all these people big influences in, in your lives or do you just stumble across a quote and was like, this fits perfectly for what I'm trying to say? I've always been a collector of quotes. Um, do you know what a commonplace book is? No. Um, in, in the Renaissance, especially educated aristocrat young men usually were encouraged to keep a commonplace book. So that basically when you're doing your studies, if you find a quote or if you're hiking and you find a lesson that's interesting, you put it in your commonplace book. Actually, Thomas Jefferson had one. And I think you can see it. Leonardo da Vinci had one that basically wow. it's, it, they, they just saved. I mean, this was before, this is when books were really super expensive. There wasn't the internet. And so these, these uh, Renaissance men, they would keep the best of their learning in this one book that they, they would go back to. And so when Thomas Jefferson wrote an essay or when Leonardo da Vinci did a piece of art, he would go back to his commonplace book for, for inspiration. Mm -hmm. And so I, without knowing what a commonplace book was, I started saving, when I was about your age, actually, I started saving quotes of everything I read into my 
Mac classic computer. And I still have those old quotes. In fact, my new book uh, that's coming out later this year is, is has even more quotes than vagabonding. Oh. And as an, as an aside, uh, Nietzsche was a huge hiker. He was a huge walker. Oh. Um, and, and, and a book that your audience might be interested in is actually Rebecca Solnit's, uh, it's called Wanderlust. It's a history, it's a cultural history of walking. Um, and it's so amazing because people like uh, Rousseau and, and Nietzsche were big walkers. Of course, Matsuo Basho, the Japanese poet, were big walkers. But Rebecca Solnit does a great job of sort of capturing all of the, the role that walking has played in cultural history. Mm-hmm. Jumping back to Commonplace book, yeah, the, those quotes had inspired me that clearly Walt Whitman was sort of my muse for that book. Like, I, I studied Whitman in college, and then when I was doing my first vagabonding trip and living in a van, um, I found Leaves of Grass for Sale in a used bookstore in Montana. And I read Song of the Open Road and it blew my mind because it was my trip. He was talking about what I had just experienced. I think I'd been traveling by van for six months then. And it's like reading Whitman in college versus reading him while you're sleeping in a van every day is so different. And it's just like, and he's so joyous and he's so positive about everything that he's, he's sort of, he's sort of the, uh, the muse of that book. I quote him a lot, but yeah. I, I quote a lot of, of John Muir and of course, Nietzsche and, and uh, Annie Dillard and, and um, religious texts from the Upanishads, the Bible. And so the reason that I had those, I think the idea of quotes, it feels like quotes at your fingertips. You can Google travel quotes and you'll get 5,000 or, and, but I think your relationship to quotes is different if you found them on a quote page versus if you've seen them in the context of a book that you really have a relationship with. And so that commonplace book was important to my creative life because without knowing why I just kept saving these quotes. And some of those quotes went into vagabonding and, 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 um, and I wrote that book when I was in Thailand, I didn't have a copy of Walt Whitman. Right. So I, it would have been impossible to write a quote rich book in a little room in Thailand when I had no English language library to draw from. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's funny. Some of the reviewers early when Vagabonding first came out, it's like, oh, there's too many quotes. And all these years later, people, they like the way that the quotes blend with my own um, reflections on the quotes. I think maybe at first people weren't just used to the the quotes being inlaid in the text in, in the way that I did it in Vagabonding. But now, Actually, a lot of the ideas that people thought were strange when vagabonding first came out are now more normal, you know, mm-hmm. especially with the ubiquity of uh, things like Zoom and Skype. And, and uh, you know, it's just it's weirder. It's less weird to be on the opposite side of the world when you can Zoom your mom and ask her how she is. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Interesting to hear that criticism of vagabonding. Too many, too many quotes. Because I mean, mm. I, I never knew that. And when I read it, I love the quotes. Mm. I mean, I found them so illustrative of what you were talking about. Or, you know, there's just such an economy of words with a quote, and it it can capture a feeling that you you maybe spent three paragraphs talking about, which was great. But then the the quote just is is exactly what that uh, what you just talked about. But it's one sentence, mm. and it's just like boom, that's it. That's the way to remember it as opposed to trying to remember the larger block. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's um like standing on the shoulders of giants. Have you heard of that phrase? I'm not sure who talked about that, that familiar. another Renaissance thinker, I think, but basically that for all of our own scholarship, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And so I, I could have given a, a, a travel advice without a lot of quotes, but I thought, well, these guys have already said it so well. These men and women from all over the world have already articulated these ideas so well. Right. I think another thing that was unique about my book at the time is that there were plenty, the time it came out, which is almost 
almost 20 years ago, there were plenty of books about how to pack your bags or where to go, mm. but there were a few philosophical books about why you should go and why it was important and, and just how much human, um, experience can come out of travel. And so, yeah, no, it's despite some of those early criticisms about the quotes, I think some, some readers like, Oh, he, he should have done more work, you know, like, like I was being lazy by putting in quotes and it's like, well, no, I was, I'm trying to, to slingshot these great ideas with my own writing, but that doesn't happen anymore. You know, I think the book seems less weird than it did in 2003. So. Yeah, no, you, I, you weren't being lazy, but I think you were being diligent, right? I mean, you're doing good research and bringing in, you know, mm, yeah. giants from the past who had those experiences, Ed Byrne, you know, someone who you, mm. You were trying to figure out vagabonding. Did I coin that term? Oh, wait, there's a guy who <laughs> did this and wrote about it and used the word and it goes back even further. And, you know. Yeah. No, yeah. he's been on my podcast, too. He's he's, he's in his 80s now. That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. I'm glad. Uh, does he have another trip coming up? A, a big uh, vagabond? Um, I'm not sure. He lives in California. Okay. He, I think he has like an online girlfriend in Kazakhstan. So maybe yeah. he will. Maybe he will travel. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> it's one. What, what struck me about talking to him, and, and if your listeners don't know, he wrote a book called Vagabonding in Europe and North Africa that was written before I was born. So, right. um, and I, I found it by accident in a bookstore in Israel. Um, and so he he said all this smart stuff about travel, but he's also very ambitious. And so he has these poetry books, even though he's eighty mid eighties, he has some books he wants to publish and some other things he wants to do. And so travel, and, you know, I think he has grandchildren now. Uh, and so, um, travel isn't as central to his way of being in the world, but it was fun right. to talk to him because he's still very excited about creating things. Um, he's not just being the guy in his eighties. who's just watching TV all day. Right. Right. I got to listen to that episode. Uh, somebody yeah. who wrote in with a, a question for you was like, make sure Rolf has me on deviate. And I was like, right. uh, I don't know if he's going to have you on, but uh, so we talked about poetry a little bit. You actually just mentioned uh, Ed has a poetry book. He might be releasing Walt Whitman was, as mm -hmm. you said, the muse for vagabonding. What do you think it is about poetry that seems inherently vagabondish? It, it strikes me as that maybe does, does do you feel that way or is it? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's almost as if like a poem is like a walk where you don't know where you're going. You know, it's it's less practical minded. You know, it's it's sort of if you could if you could communicate certain ideas from a poem in an essay, it would be easier to write the essay. But there's some human feelings that um, that don't quite fit into that epistolary or epistolary means letter, but in, into that essayistic form. And so a poem allows you to be a little bit vaguer and to reach in certain emotional and imagistic directions and create something very human that may surprise even the poet who is writing it. Right. And so a lot of people had written about travel when I was a young man, but there was something about Walt Whitman's poem that was just, they were just so positive. You know, I think, especially nowadays in, in the social media age where negativity is more clickbaitable. Yeah. Um, what excited me, but even back then before social media was just how positive and excited you could feel Whitman was through his poetry. Uh, and so the poetic form in that case really inspired me in a way that an essay might not have. Uh, and so a lot of those pull quotes and, and um, embedded quotes in Vagabonding are from Walt Whitman, just because I felt like he put it in, he, he put that feeling in a way better than I could state myself. Yeah. I mean, the, the veracity of some of his lines are just, it's incredible. I mean, he's such a, he's so clear and, and powerful in, in those, uh, 
in those poems and especially the song of the open road. It, it really does capture the, the experience of being out there in the world in a new place, moving through it in a purposeful, but also really open-ended uh, way, you know, anything can happen. And it's, um, yeah, it's just like, oh, what, what's next? You know, what, what's going to pop up here or there to excite me? What's, I mean, it's, it's about love too. I mean, there's emotion. When, my, when I asked my wife to marry me, I said, Kiki, give me, give me your hand. Give me, give me your, your heart. Gosh, I'm, I'm going to misquote uh, Whitman. Give, give me uh, your life more precious than money. Give me your love more precious than money. Will you come travel with me? Shall we travel together as long as we live? You know? And so there's just, there's a passion in that poetry that not only inspired me to travel the world, but I used those words to ask my wife to marry me a couple of years ago. So I think that emotion and I'm I'm sort of a, a stoical Kansas guy, so sometimes I'm missing. I'm not, that emotion doesn't come by me naturally. You know, I never I would never write a poem like Walt Whitman did. Yet, even though I'm sort of a an understated, not very emotional guy, I really it was there's something addictive about the the emotions that he embedded in that poem. Yeah, I mean, it, it, they're so they they really they pop out in a way that I mean, it's also the language. I think you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure there are modern day writers who are using that language possibly. I, I haven't read too much modern poetry, but you know, one of those lines that's very loving that uh, Whitman uses, he goes, I believe you are latent with unseen existences. You are so dear to me. Mm. Yeah, he's talking to the road. Yeah, I know, right? It's just that, like, it's, man, if I said that to my girlfriend, it would be, woo! Yeah. Right, right. yeah, unbelievable. So yeah, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Another thing too, and because the the second time I went to New York, my friend wrote it in a bathroom stall actually, and mm. it's um, at, henceforth we ask not good fortune, we are good fortune, right? <laughs> um, like, don't ask for good luck, just be good luck. Uh, I love it. Yeah, no, I, I could I could talk all day about Walt Whitman. That's great. What uh, what bathroom is that? You think the quote's still on the wall? Should I take a picture of? <laughs> This was 20 years ago, meatpacking district. Uh, okay. Back when the meatpacking district was sort of a, a grungy place, like there's yeah. some great dive bars there about right. 20 years ago. And now it's it's just a nice, you know, yeah, Chelsea adjacent art yeah. district. Yeah. yeah. I work in the West Village, so I kind of walk okay. near that when I go up to the train. And yeah, I mean, I think there's only like one or two actual meatpackers left in the meatpacking yeah. hall. Hip clubs and very fine dining restaurants and... And yeah. All that, yeah. New York's changed, man. New York's changed. <laughs> no, I, I love the city, but it has changed. Yeah. It has. It um, has. Yeah. That, you know, that's something I've grappled with too, coming back from the trip because I want to, you know, part of what always I loved about New York was the sense that you could do anything here. And there was great clubs and great venues like you know, CBGB and studio 54, all these things mm-hmm. I'd grown up hearing about. And then coming back, I've like, you know, I've, tried to make it part of who I am because it's something I'm interested in. I'm interested in hospitality. I want to start my own event space. So I've been doing research and going to different places and they all just seem a lot more narrow. They're kind of not formulaic, but a lot of people are borrowing from the ideas uh, of other people. Maybe they put on a show and then it's a ticketed event and that's it. You know, there's not like this all inclusive, anything can happen. There's something going on there. There's something going on there. There's the main Mm. stage, but you don't necessarily need to pay attention to it because you're with your friends and there's upstairs and downstairs. And I don't know, I'm trying to, you know, grapple with that is, is it possible to still do that in New York? Maybe I need to go to Asheville or <laughs> somewhere else. Well, well that, that's worth thinking about. Um, <laughs> and, and I actually did an episode about places that were like New York 
or Chicago or Austin or Minneapolis, you know, those cool towns, but are less expensive, right? right. So I think the fact that New York is so expensive, a lot of really interesting people can't afford to be there. Right. And this is why I mentioned, go to the part of town, the, the side of town that's supposed to be the bad part of town, the air quotes, bad part of town, because right. when CBGB's was the club, the Bowery was, you know, a horrible neighborhood, right? right. Um, and so I think art often goes hand in hand with, being available to people who have less money, you know? And so maybe, yeah, it could be Asheville, although Asheville is probably on, on the Portland Austin level now too. It's, yeah. it's been too fashionable for too long, but find that place in Tennessee or Idaho or Kansas or, or the Texas high plains or whatever, where it's affordable enough to approach and you can attract enough young, exciting artist type people there. I think it's a, yeah. it's a cool moment in, in American history, just because I think, maybe because of online connectivity, you can start um, cool little art scenes. In fact, the New York Times travel section just had like 52 places to go at, in, oh. in, in 2022. One of them was Humboldt, Kansas, which is in my home state, but I've never spent any time in Humboldt, Kansas. I didn't realize, well, some young people went back there, they renovated some buildings, they, they're trying to make it livable for the people. So I, I'm, a, I'm as much of a fan of New York as anybody, but it doesn't have to be New York anymore for it to be the cool place to be, that there's other places where if you get enough smart people, it's often young people together uh, with some resources, you can really have a fun, dynamic, interactive place. Right. You're, you're probably right. I guess, I guess it's just hard for me to grapple with that as someone who grew up here and someone who loves and values public transit in such mm. a, like, in, in an intimate way. It's, it's how I get around. It's how I see the city. Like, I don't even know. I, I am learning how to drive, but I don't know how to drive. So right, right. The idea New of being in, <laughs> elsewhere is very daunting in terms of that. Yeah. Well, there's other boroughs, but, um, sure, you yeah. know, that, that are, that are Bronx, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe up and coming in their own way. I mean, Queens used to be that way. Queens, wasn't that long ago when, when Queens was super affordable and, and I'm sure it's, it's super interesting in its own way, but I think the Bronx is the future of the five boroughs. Uh, totally. But yeah, what, what greater challenge you've, you've already walked across the Appalachian trail. Why not learn how to drive properly and, and yeah, have yeah. an adventure someplace weird. Yes. I'm going to make it happen and I'll let you know when it, when it does happen, I'll drive across the country. I'll stop in Kansas on the way. Cool. <laughs> um, another quote to bring it back to the quotes, you quote Kerouac in the chapter, keep it simple. And I love Kerouac. That's one of the other truly influential writers and particularly the book on the road for mm. me, aside from vagabonding. Um, and you know, he, you, you quote a notion that he talks about in society that we just work, produce, consume, and how we should maybe, or he thought that we should try to reject that idea a bit. But when I thought about my travel and particularly on the Appalachian Trail, I certainly wasn't doing the working or producing, but I was doing the consuming. I mean, I went through mm. five pairs of shoes. I had undo gear replacements. I used a ton of single use plastics, whether it was the food I was eating, dehydrated meals and pouches. So that was a little difficult for me to grapple with because coming back, I mean, I, I, my, my carbon footprint in terms of single use plastics is definitely way down. I mean, I don't use nearly the amount I was using on the trail and I, I, I don't know, I am now doing the working and producing certainly still consuming on a, on a lower level. So I don't know, is travel always a, a less, is it always a rejection of that in on all three uh, tiers or is it just, you're not working and producing, but you're still consuming? Well, you're always consuming to a certain level, but sure. I think having to throw away a pair of shoes because they've been walked 
to the point of uselessness is a good reason to throw away a pair of shoes. I mean, Americans, you know, they'll, they'll take 20 pairs of perfectly good shoes to the thrift store, you know, every year um, just because they can. Uh, and so I think there's different levels. I mean, this is sort of why I wrote Vagabonding because there's lots of books that can tell you what, what to buy, where to go, stuff like that. But I wanted to write a sort of an ethos or a philosophy of travel. And so I think you can very much have a consumerist approach to travel where you're trying to go to the hottest new destination and you're going to a place and, you know, it, it may be in Costa Rica, but it's sort of the Brooklyn of Costa Rica. You're basically doing the same, you're finding the microbrewery of right. Costa Rica sort of thing. Uh, and so I think if we get in, we're, in America, especially we're so inculcated with that uh, consumerist mindset that we can forget that you don't have to be a consumer of travel, that you can just throw open your guest house or hostel door and walk around until your day becomes interesting. And um, yeah, so I think travel is not an absolute panacea because you can still get into that lockstep where you're sort of buying your travel experience. And I'm not going to knock, I mean, there's some beautiful restaurants around the world where it's worth paying the money to have that amazing meal um, or worth paying the entrance fee to see this amazing park. And one thing I think sometimes backpackers don't do well enough is sometimes they forget that the tourist economy helps prop up these national parks. It helps keep these local economies going. And so I'm all about being, you know, cheap as far as, you know, paying for a hotel where the dollar ends up in Houston, Texas, even though it's in in Nepal. Right. But sometimes spending, spending that money is worth it when it's going into the, you know, it's improving somebody's life in Kathmandu. Right. So, um, so yeah, I think there's many different levels. You're, nobody's ever completely separate from the consumer life, but I think travel, especially that walk until your day becomes interesting level of travel allows you to see consumerism from the other side, mm-hmm. or it allows you to say, well, today I need to, um, you know, I, I need to get my bike fixed or today I need to get a visa or today I need to get some groceries so that I can cook them in my guest house. Well, then that allows you to, to go shopping in the way that somebody in, you know, Thailand or Colombia has to do the same thing when they need to get their bike fixed or when they need to get groceries. And so then you're a consumer, but you're not sort of a flashy travel industry consumer. You're someone who's just living your life in another place in a way that teaches you a lot about that place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I just have the tendency to get a little too wrapped up in the ideas and, you know, feel like I'm not doing my part. Like I'm not, I'm not living the Karak with such an influence. I'm like, but I, I, but I'm still doing, I'm still in the cycle. I haven't broken it. You know, I, I get, a, I get a too much of that angst and it's like, uh, maybe, you know, spending a dollar at this, the extra dollar at that hostel really helps the trail community and it helps that person stay open mm. and help more hikers. And, you know, I shouldn't be down on myself for it. Well, and, and it's not a contest too, you know, and, and, and Kerouac was great, but like to try and to retrace uh, on the road. I mean, they traveled so fast, you know, yes. like it was, it was all about speed. They're racing around. It's like, Jack, slow down and enjoy yourself every yeah. once in a while. Yeah. Um, and you can see, you know, I, I've, I, I still really enjoy that book, but I especially loved it as a young guy. Cause I love the idea of just being in motion, which is great. Right. But, um, I think sometimes that young attitude towards travel is sometimes not slow enough. Sometimes it's, it's wise to slow down and savor those things. And again, yeah, if there's, if there's a little shop that's really serving the trail community, spend your money there because it's good that they're open. If there's a mom, if there's a restaurant that's, you know, it's the best soup you've had and it's in Cambodia, um, you know, spend your money there. Um, don't, don't, don't be cheap about that because that is your money going. That's a great thing that again, in the, in the internet economy, sometimes you can, 
not only do you not see where your the things you bought were made, you don't see the person who sold them because you're buying them online. Whereas right. when you see the woman who cooked your soup, serving you the soup in Cambodia, that's really awesome. And, and that money is sending her kids to school. It's, it's just an amazing, it's just that interconnectedness that, that you feel when you slow down enough to feel it. And so, and actually that quote, I think he was quoting Gary Snyder. It was in Kerouac's book, uh, Dharma Bums, but he was Gary, uh, quoting the poet, again, oh. poetry, Gary Snyder, uh, who's, who's, who had a very Buddhist way of looking at the world who was trying to think of ways uh, to convince people to not be so consumerist about their American lives. Because in the 50s and 60s, America was newly rich after World War II. And it was exciting for people to be able to throw their money around and have a fancy car and stuff. And it's sort of this spiritual idea that actually it's not about what you can buy, but it's about what you can do. It's about what you can experience. And so that was was what uh, Gary Snyder through Kerouac was talking about Mm. in that book. I didn't realize that. And that, that's so interesting. You talk about the 50s and the 60s in terms of that, that period in American culture. I mean, it's also the invention of plastics, right? And all this, mm. all these consume, all these just like for one single time. Oh, we have this Tupperware now. And then, oh, but we can print a million more. They're cheap. We don't need to worry about it. And now, you know, we're starting to deal with those effects of that kind of culture and living that way for so long. And this, you know, time of, climate uncertainty. I mean, it's, it's definitely, you know, we were talking before we started 70 mile an hour winds in Kansas, right? I mean, yeah. how, how normal is that? It's pretty First admirable. time in my life. Yeah. Right. Crazy. Right. Um, so here's a question from the crowd. This is from okay. a friend of mine. Uh, I told him I was doing the Appalachian trail. He was very excited for me. This was probably three months before I left. So sometime in early 2021 and He was at a job that he didn't love and was considering leaving. Uh, He was working remotely, but ultimately he didn't. I think he kind of got like an internal promotion. So he decided to stay with the job and and not quit and travel. And and he was going to hike the Israel National Trail, which is Hmm. uh, the trail in in Israel, north to south. Uh, But he ultimately didn't do that. So his question, and I haven't made fun of him for it, but I maybe gave him a little bit of grief. Uh, His question was, what's the number one reason people say they can never do what you do? Mm. That's that's actually a good question. Um, I think it's fear and that fear can manifest in several different ways. Um, uh, Oftentimes people think they need permission to do something when really they need to give themselves permission. Uh, And they think they need a lot of money to do something when they just need enough money. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes they think they read the newspaper, which is, or the newspaper, listen to me, born in 1970. Um, They, they read news online and it's all, it's the clickbait stuff. It's the bad news about the world. And they think the world is more dangerous than it is. You know, it's a fear-based attention economy. And of course, this is this applies to the United States as well. I've had people tell me, oh, I'll never go to Kansas. And it's like, what? Why, why wouldn't you go to Kansas? You know, because people learn, they for various reasons, they learn to fear places and they learn to fear losing money and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I think what I would say uh, it, to, to the question is just like the first step of any journey is the decision that it's going to happen, you know, because oftentimes we dream about things, uh, but we just keep them as dreams. But when we decide it's going to happen, or you tell a friend, I'm going to, by 2024, I'm going to be living in a van, or I'm going to be traveling in Africa, or I'm going to be hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. And then your friend is like, hey, how's the planning going? And it's like, oh yeah, right. <laughs> you know, the, the basically once you create that little nut of an idea, actually, I write, I write this about, um, I write about this about 
this in my new book. When I was planning my first vagabonding trip, I was working at a grocery store in Wichita, Kansas to my summer off from college. And I was making this little beaded necklace and just dreaming about my trip. And then I, I was wearing that necklace three years later when I was in living in the van and, and uh, taking the trip. And I met this girl and we made out on the beach and I gave her the necklace. And I said, I was dreaming of you when I made this necklace. And it sounds really corny and it is really corny, but it's true that basically I was dreaming of all the amazing things that hadn't happened yet. Right. I didn't have the money to do it when I was that summer. I didn't have, I didn't really have the courage to do it yet. I didn't have the van. I didn't have any idea. I didn't have a guidebook. I didn't know. I just knew I was going to do it. And so I think once you decide to do it in any form, these amazing futures happen, you know, that you had no idea what, what, what would happen. You know, my, my wife, I was talking about this the other day. She went to drama school when she was in college, she did a semester or a summer abroad in England. Mm. And then she ended up getting a graduate degree. And that's how she became an actor is that traveling away and, and trying something mm. um, led to her vocation. Right. Mm. And of course now I'm a travel writer. So trying something led to my vocation too. Right. So um, yeah. So I guess, that's what I would tell people that you have no idea. Once you decide to do something, you have no idea what kind of amazing things are going to happen. And, but what holds you accountable to actually going on the trip? Is it telling a couple friends and then having them be like, Oh, when, when are you going on the trip? Was it the making of the necklace? And then, you know, having that and wearing and being like, mm. why am I still in Kansas? Well, right. what, uh, well not, nothing against Kansas. What <laughs> element of it? Like, uh, yeah. What element made you hold, hold yourself? Was it personal? Like, Oh, I said, I'm going to do it. I got to do it. Well, it was personal. I was really nervous that I would never be able to travel like that again. And it, yeah. it's the way it's, it's why I wrote vagabonding. It was sort of to the person I was at that age, because, you know, my grandpa was a Kansas farmer. He'd worked hard and he'd started farming. When he was 15. He had an eighth grade education, but then by the time he retired, my grandmother had uh, Alzheimer's disease. He couldn't really enjoy the time that, that the hard work life gave you. And so I was really scared at that age that mm -hmm. I was accountable because I didn't want to be a person who'd worked hard and done all the right things and didn't have time at the end of his life to do something. Right. And so before I took that first trip, I thought it would be my last. I thought, I thought it would be like a front-loaded retirement. I didn't realize that travel was cheaper and easier and safer than I thought it was. Like nobody was telling me this, you right. know, especially right. in... In, in in what is called the middle of nowhere, flyover country. I didn't know anybody in Kansas who traveled. Um, and so that's why, that's why I wrote the book. And so for me, it was just this, this desperate urge to do, to do it. But now it's easier to, to go online and see people of all ages and backgrounds and nationalities doing it. And so I think, yeah, maybe having a friend and, and not just telling him about the trip but saying, look, I promised to myself that I'd be on the road in a year. I want you to be my inner voice too. I want you to, I want you to make fun of me. I want you to give me a hard time if I'm not on the road in a year right. and ask me why, because I think it's sometimes it's easy to make promises to ourselves and not be accountable to ourselves. But if we can sort of share it in a way that if not shamed, then we're at least held accountable, then that, then they become a part of it too, because, um, then, then suddenly your friend is like, well, I want to join you. I, you know, I've never been to Maine before. Let's, let's go hiking in Maine. Mm -hmm. And so pretty soon you're doing, you're, you have an adventure or you're, you're telling your parents about it. And they're like, yeah, you know, when I was in my mid twenties, I wanted to go to Bhutan and you're like, well, come to Bhutan, meet me in Bhutan. Yeah. And so like, I've traveled, that's not exactly what happened with my parents, but I've been with my parents to Paris and Prague. I've been to China and Mongolia with them and they didn't even have passports before they came to visit me in Asia and Europe. And so I think sometimes having people that you can share your dreams with can keep you accountable, but it's infectious, right? And suddenly your friend who was just your fail safe mechanism, suddenly they're like, 
can I go? <laughs> and, 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 and suddenly you're inspiring people. So it's, it's an awesome, you can really create an energy by deciding to go. It's it really, it's the first, the, the first step of that trip when I was 23 years old was not driving down Oregon highway 99. It was making that necklace and working at a grocery store and dreaming about what I didn't know yet, but it came true eventually. So. Well, I'll be sending my friend a text bugging him saying, uh, Rolf told me to nudge you. It's, uh, it's time there to start go. thinking about that trip. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, well, I know we're nearing the, the top of the hour here, so I only want to hit you with uh, one more. But uh, I, I'm curious about this. It's a little out of left field. But in light of you having done so much traveling, how many languages do you speak? And has travel made it easier to pick up new ones? I, I am. A, actually, my wife speaks great German. I speak bad Spanish and bad Korean in, in good English, right? So there's good news and bad news there. One is that I'm a horrible language learner, but two, I've traveled to, to you know, close in on a hundred countries without having good language skills. I think right. there's, there is um, different, there's ways to communicate without being fluent in a language. And so you can travel even if you're not fluent in languages. Um, I can read and write Hangul, which is the Korean alphabet. Um, I know some phrases of Arabic and Spanish and French, but that's about it. And so that is a blind spot. I would encourage people to be a little bit more ambitious about their language learning. And I think your brain is a little bit better for that. Like my Korean is better than my Spanish because I was in my 20s when I was studying Korean. I was in my 30s when I was studying Spanish. I think you, your brain becomes less less flexible in that way. That could be just my excuse. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, while you can, definitely dive right into it. Because one fun thing about learning Hangul in Korea is that suddenly I could read all the signs. You know, It's like, oh my God, that's a restaurant. Like all this, I had no idea. Yeah. So when I took the Trans-Siberian across Russia, I, I taught myself uh, Cyrillic, which is the Russian alphabet or the Eastern mm. European uh, Slavic alphabet. And even though I didn't learn much Russian, it's sort of a hard language to, to learn. I could read signs in um, in Cyrillic. And so Pektopa is restaurant. Like that's you know basically what in English looks like Pektopa in Russian Cyrillic is restaurant. Mm. And it's the same word. So um, even though I'm a bad language learner, I encourage people to, to, to just be bold about that because there's a joy in learning other languages. How many languages do you speak? Uh, I speak English well, uh, right. as you can tell. Uh, <laughs> I speak Hebrew decently. I, I was raised learning Hebrew and uh, reading from the the Bible, the Old Testament. Um, mm -hmm. My Hebrew is is okay. It's it's no longer fluent, I would say. Um, and now I'm trying to learn Spanish in part because of you know my interest in the hospitality space and working at a catering business. I mean, a lot of yeah. the people who make those industries run speak Spanish or. Are Spanish speaking only in some cases, you know, whether they be yeah. the cook or whether they be the help or, you know, in, in any form, uh, even in an upper management. So um, it's, it's, and, it, yeah. it's the same way. And it's the same way in Kansas. Sorry to interrupt you, but no, um, no, no. Um, yeah, like it, it's, it's fun to talk to somebody. My Spanish isn't great, but to talk to some like a Mexican worker in, in Kansas to ask them exactly where in Mexico they're from, because nobody asked that. There's a lot of people from Zacatecas here in this part of Kansas where I am now. And so, and they, they could be from Guatemala or, 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 you know, Ecuador or something. And so that's right. a fun part of knowing that language. Another thing that I thought of when you were talking, mm. if you speak Hebrew, then that's the same language family as Arabic. So if you go to that part of the world, you know, walk around, have you been to Israel? 
I have, yeah, I have some family. They'll actually be going in in April for Passover as well. Oh, awesome! Yeah, so so don't don't let your Hebrew get too rusty. You know, we're yeah. in Hebrew, and then actually, a lot of people speak Arabic in Israel too. You know, in okay. fact, a lot of the people in the service industry and restaurants and you know driving your bus or whatever uh, have speak Arabic as their first language, and so Arabic is like the Portuguese to to uh, Hebrews Spanish, right? So um, that would be a fun uh, thing to challenge because Israel is so close too that. You're right there by Egypt and Jordan, for example. Oh, totally. And those are such amazing places to visit. So I would love to. I mean, I would love to travel more. I've been thinking about my next uh, vagabond. And, you know, the last note on that language thing is something you write in the book is that, you know, you don't need to know the language. Just try to learn a couple of the key words, you know, hmm. eat, sleep, transit, beer. You know, sure. yeah, <laughs> you'll, yeah, yeah. you'll get by pretty far with, with those. And people will tend to be pretty helpful. For sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to do this and coming on the podcast. Um, is there anything you can tell us about this new book or is it under wraps until it, the announcement? Well, the publisher hasn't announced it, so I, sh- I probably shouldn't. And they haven't settled on the title yet, but it's it's oh. sort of the spiritual sequel to Vagabonding. Like after awesome. after 20 years, people have said, are you going to write another Vagabonding? It's like, no, I, I wrote one Vagabonding. This is it's different than Vagabonding, but in, this, in, the, in the thematic and spiritual sense, it has a lot in common with Vagabonding. And it comes out in October. Uh, and keep an eye out. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Ruben Dryblatt's podcast, The AT with You and Me, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.